take your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 22, verses 22-29. Next week we are going to begin a series, a four-week series for the Christmas season. I've entitled it, Always Winter, Never Christmas. We're going to look at different parts of our lives that get fro- gets frozen. Frozen thoughts, frozen faith, frozen hearts, frozen dreams. And we're going to talk about how we were people in the, living in the darkness. But Emmanuel was sent to us to set us free and to give us hope. So that is coming up for the next four weeks. But for this week... I want to do a standalone sermon. We just finished 1 Thessalonians about the power of the gospel. So this morning I want to bring back our relevant series. It's been about a year and a half. This is something we would do every couple months. The last few years that Pastor Mark was the pastor, uh, senior pastor. Um, and we just, for a year, we kind of took a break from it. Um, the elders really wanted me just to focus on preaching the gospel and through different books of the Bible. But I have one Sunday here. And I've been sitting in my tree stand a lot over the last few weeks and uh, thinking a lot about kind of the cultural issues and what's going on in the world and what's happened over the last few uh, months and uh, this past year, especially as it deals with COVID and, and uh, everything around that. And when I came in the office Monday morning, I, put it, I started putting notes together. I had 19 pages of thoughts. Usually a typical sermon's about nine pages. So just to say, this is going to be long, probably my longest sermon yet. I did cut a lot, um, but it is going to be long. So I want to answer this question this morning. What does it mean to be a Christian and submit to authority these days? I have told you before that... that Faith is saying yes to the Lord before you know what the question is. Saying yes, Lord. I said yes to becoming the senior pastor November 2019 at an elder meeting. After we prayed about it for a couple months. In February of 2020, you guys voted as a congregation to call Stacy and I as the new senior pastor after being here for 12-ish years of being, the, of being the youth pastor. Great, great times. And well, God did amazing things. The vote was in February. We all know what happened in March and a little bit before March and everything that came down with um, COVID and the challenges that we face because of the health and because of the government and some of the... Uh, what has come down. We've all faced challenges since then. You've known that I had never taken a preaching per se class. Yes, I went to seminary, but was not focused on becoming a a full-time pastor. So to say I'm well qualified to talk about this this morning, I'm not. However, I want to walk through this in an honest way, the best that I can, being led by the Holy Spirit, and being true to the word of God as I've studied and as I've prayed about this. This is not a sermon on the, the, the efficacies of vaccines or if you should get the shot or you should not get the shot. That's between you and your doctor. And I know many of you have been wrestling with that. This is not a political conversation. However, politics have been infused into everything The moment the state tells you how many people you can have over for dinner, when or how we can meet as a church, 
what you need to put into your body or your kid's body, which may affect your job or your schooling, that you have to wear a mask. Just this past Friday, I saw the news. And Santa Cruz County, California, announced that it is invoking a new mandate for the holiday seasons into private homes. If you are gathering with others who do not live in the same household, you should mask up regardless of your vaccination status. And we've watched this unfold. It's become political, which is sad, which is incredibly sad. So I encourage you to ask the question whether or not we have a church, as a church, have made it political, or if it became political because it came to the church. Over the last few months, the number of people that have come to me or our leaders or one of the other pastors here and asked, how do I, as a follower of Jesus, work through my conscience in regards to the mandates, to the vaccines, to my employment, to the religious exemptions, has been staggering. I have spent hours counseling and talking through people through this. So again this morning, I want to answer this question. What does it mean to be a Christian and submit to authorities these days? So let's pray as we start. So Father, first and foremost, we want to acknowledge that you are God. That you are the ultimate authority and you've sent your son Jesus to give us hope. Father, and as we figure out what this looks like in the culture that we live, to fully follow you, we know there's going to be differences of opinions among those in this room and in our community and in our state and in our nation. But God, we want to follow hard after you. We want to have, have convictions. And we want to live out of those convictions. So God, this morning, may your word be our north star. May the spirit speak loud to us. And Father, to say I'm nervous about doing this would be an understatement. But you are God and you are Lord. And I want to honor you. I felt... The Holy Spirit leading us to talk about this. We haven't talked at all as a church over the last 18 months about this from the pulpit. And Father, we want to be people that follow hard after you. Father, I lift before you these young people that are involved in this accident. Lives are being changed because of the events of last night. So reach into these families those that know you, may they be a light. And those that don't know you, Father, may they come to know you through this, through this, through this accident. And may our, our, our young people that know you provide hope. So we lift that before you. Guide the doctor's hands right now. As I know, one young man is down in Grand Rapids and he's, he's clinging to life. So, Father, they need to stop the bleeding. They've got to figure out where it's coming from. So, Father, I pray right now for the doctor's hands. Give them wisdom. So, Father, may the words of my heart and the meditation of my, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, Father, because you are my rock and you are my redeemer. Pray this in your precious name. Amen. So, so Acts 22, 22 through 29 will be our key passage this morning. And I'm going to try to stick very closely to my notes, so I'm not going to be doing a lot of walking around just so I can stay, stay on task. So it starts out in verse 22. The crowd listened until Paul said that word. So immediately you go, what word did he say? 
why is he getting, why is the crowd getting all worked up? So we got to go back to verse 21. And it says this, But the Lord said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So Gentiles was a dirty word to the Jews. They did not associate with each other. The Jews did not believe that the gospel, the power of the gospel, was for the Gentiles. And Paul had been preaching at the temple in Jerusalem, and the religious leaders accused him of preaching against the Jews everywhere and telling everyone to disobey the Jewish laws. We see that in chapter 21 as you read the context. So Paul gets beaten, Paul gets arrested, and the crowd follows behind him shouting, kill him, kill him. We see that in Acts 21. He then finally gets the opportunity to speak. And Paul tells the group that he's speaking to that he's more Jewish than they are. And they're taken back by that. That, that he's more zealous than they are for God, his Father. And that God had called him into the ministry to preach to the Gentiles. And when they hear Gentiles, they go off. There, there, there's no category in their nationalistic zeal that allowed Gentiles to enter into the kingdom of God. It just could not happen. So in verse 22, verse B, we see the response to that. Then they all began to shout, Away with such a fellow. He isn't fit to live. They yelled, they threw off their coats, and they tossed handfuls of dust into the air. That was kind of crazy, but that's how they protested. A quick principle that we learn from this passage before we move on, it is possible to be following Jesus and to let your nationalistic zeal become a priority over kingdom work. Think back to January 6th. When we saw people carrying crosses and Christian flags, waving them outside the Capitol, and we can say, okay, I think you misunderstood nationalism and the kingdom of God. Yes, you've got passion, but the kingdom of God is the number one priority. So this is happening in the text. They people have lost their ever-loving minds, and they were shouting, away with this fellow. He's not fit to live. They were worked up, to say the least. So then we get to verse 24. The commander brought Paul inside and ordered him lashed with whips to make him confess his crime. He wanted to find out why the crowd had become so furious. When they tied Paul down to lash him, Paul said to the officer standing there, Is it legal for you to whip a Roman citizen who has not even been tried? So look what Paul does. He's not arguing with them on theology. He's not talking to them about their understanding of salvation, grace alone through faith alone. He's not attacking a misconstrued theological belief about who Jesus was. He asks them a simple question. Is it legal for you to whip a Roman citizen who has not even been tried yet? Is it okay for you to violate your own Roman civil law? So I read this and I asked myself, why is this in the Bible? The obvious takeaway is Paul is not excited about getting a beating. Who would be? But he, but he was also pointing out that it is not okay to violate your own internal law. Verse 26, when the officer heard this, he went to the commander and asked, 
What are you doing? This is a Roman citizen. The officer is scared. He knows what happens when a Roman law is broken, and he knows the consequences. Verse 27, So the commander went over and asked Paul, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I certainly am, Paul replied. I am too, the commander muttered, and it cost me plenty. He's probably whispering it to Paul. And it cost me plenty. Paul answered, I am a citizen by birth. So Paul had been born a Roman citizen, whereas the commanding officer in this case had purchased his citizenship. Buying citizenship was a very common practice in that days, a good source of income for the Roman government. Bought citizenship, bought citizenship though, however, was inferior to being born a citizen. And this officer knew that. So verse 29, the soldiers who were about to, the soldiers who were about to interrogate Paul, which is a nice way to say beat him, purchased his citizenship. Sorry. Let me read it right out here, not from memory. The soldiers who were about to interrogate Paul quickly withdrew when they heard he was a Roman citizen. And the commander was frightened because he had ordered him bound and whipped. And then he goes on. The next day the commander ordered the leading priest into the session with the Jewish high council. He wanted to find out what trouble was all about. So he released Paul to have him stand before him. So the officer's fears are legitimate. He knows he has overstepped his authority. If he would have gone any further with Paul, there would have been a price to pay because in that culture, a Roman citizen could not be punished until he had been proven guilty of a crime. Now normally we in church, we would read this passage and we would move on and maybe say something like, follow the rules, or if you don't follow the rules, you might get disciplined or in trouble. But from this passage... I believe we can learn some lessons on how Christians understand submission to authority in a time where it seems very muddy and very confusing. So this, a lot of this came to me. Remember two weeks ago I wasn't planning on preaching? Also I get a call, Pastor Foley's sick, so I had to come back. And I went to Acts chapter, I think it was 22, 24, right through there. So I read all this context and I read this passage and I'm like, man, this is so applicable for today. So that's why I've been chewing on it since then. One of my favorite pastors to listen to recently is Vody Bachman. He has famously said, many Christians believe that the 11th commandment is thou shalt be nice. It is not. Can't find it anywhere. We are called to be kind. We are called to be gentle. To live peaceful lives and honor, respect, and submit to those in authority. At the same time, we feel tension. When, we, when what is evil is called good and what is good is called evil. So how does a Christian navigate a culture that is increasingly hostile to the word of God and the people of God and at the same time live quiet and peaceful lives? So we need to talk about a few words first before we get really practical. So the first one is authority or, or those that are in authority. Romans 13 First Peter, talk about those that are in authority. Authority is a part of human life. We all understand there are levels of authority. But first and foremost, the Christian must understand that Jesus is Lord of all. There's a period there. Should be an exclamation point there. He is not Lord of only the church. He's not Lord of only your devotional life. He's Lord of all things. This includes government, 
every piece of land on this earth and even the stars. And when, when the men went to the moon, he even owns the moon. They're his. Every man, every woman, every child, and everything that is theirs, first and foremost, is his. And this is how Jesus mentioned it or understood it. Matthew 28, 18. I have been given all authority in heaven and earth. Who's got all authority in heaven and earth? Jesus. Period. Over everything in your life. Everything. This is how Jesus understood it. The Christian, first and foremost, must understand that Jesus is Lord of all things and that every other authority structure is in submission to him. That means the Christian does not have the power struggle of who they are going to obey when the authorities disagree. We turn to the Word of God. So God has given, as we study the Word of God, he's given us four ordained lanes of leadership. First, the church. God church leaders, and church members. Within the church, the leadership of pastors, elders, and teachers is essential for the health of the body of Christ. Believers are to honor and respect leaders and to submit to another and walk in humility. Another lane of leadership, the family. God, husband, wife, and children. God entrusts husbands with the leadership of a family unit. A husband is to love his wife as he loves himself and then to cherish her. A wife is to submit to the leadership of her husband, coming alongside of him as a helpmate and respecting him. Parents are responsible to train their children in the admonition of the Lord. And children are to honor and obey their parents. Then we got the government. God national leaders, local officials, and citizens. In Scripture, we are instructed to respect and obey government authorities and laws and to live honorably within our communities. National leaders and local officials are to punish evildoers and honor those who do well. And then we got businesses. God, employers, and employees. Employees are challenged to act with equity and care as they oversee employees, patterning their behavior after God himself. Can I just say, I've watched some of you that own businesses. You guys are doing it so well. You're honoring your employees. You're making it a joy for them to work with you. Excellent job. And employees, you have a responsibility too, to serve well. Do your work as you're working wholeheartedly as to the Lord. So there's four unique and distinct lanes of leadership with different roles and different responsibilities laid out by God and each has their own lanes and sometimes they overlap. So all authority, human authority, has levels and limits. We are tempted to think as Christians when we talk about authority that we give this blanket covering that all people in authority are in absolute authority. We see from Paul in this passage that this is not true. The authority does not have ultimate authority. The officer had a hundred men under him. His commander had authority over a thousand men. The officer knew he could not do anything without his boss's permission. So I used to work for Zealand Public Schools as a janitor when I was in, in college. And I quickly learned that I was on the bottom rung, part-time custodian. 
I was all by myself there. As far as any organizational chart that I would see, everyone was above me. But I worked for Merle Timmer, the head custodian at Lincoln Elementary School. Merle was my boss. However, every teacher thought they were my boss. So I had to quickly learn to say, I see that need. Yes, I understand there's a, something needs to be done here. Let me see what Merle has to say, and I'll do what Merle tells me to do. He was my boss. Everyone has limits and levels of authority. We understand this in a practical way, but in a Christian theological sense, we often give people in authority blank checks to rule over all things. Tracking with me? Because our, because our job is to be submissive, to be quiet, and to be obedient. All human authority has levels and limits. Beyond that, it is important to understand contextually the authority structures of the New Testament church that Paul was writing to and the authority structure of the government that he was living under. There's a difference between a monarchy and a dictatorship and a constitutional republic. For a Christian to be faithful to the authorities is predicated on understanding the authorities and the structures of authorities that we live under and work under. Paul is calling his Roman officer, I mean, Paul is calling this Roman officer to do what? Not God's law, but Roman's law. He understood Roman's, Rome law. He understood this system. He was born in it. He lived in it. He was a citizen. He understood it. He just doesn't do this one time. As you read through Acts, we see it in other places. When he was in jail and then they got released. And then he gets, these are officials, once he gets out, they just want to push it under the rug. And he says, no, you come here. And he calls the officials over to him. And, and, and he says, you have overstepped your bounds. You have departed your lane. So the question is, is Paul being disobedient to his own call to be submissive to the authorities? And calling them back into his lane? I don't think so. So the second word, before we get real practical, is submission. Submission is willful compliance to a legitimate law or a person in authority. It's not going with the flow because it's the easy way out. Sometimes we think rocking the, that the kindness is just rocking the boat. How many of you have ever had a friend that, that needed someone to lovingly talk to them and to confront them, and you justified the lack of going to them as a way of being kind or scared or something, but you knew something had to happen? Now, there's a way to do this that is grace-filled and a way to do it that is not. Notice how Paul does not talk in this passage. He's not harsh. He is kind. He's gracious, he's clear, he's truthful, he's speaking the truth. He does not call them names. He does not call them names on Facebook or Instagram or anywhere else. Just says, is it lawful to do what you are about to do? We cannot say submission is de defined by kindness the way people think kindness works. We need to be kind, but it's not the chief end. Let me just say this, challenging authority within the system is not disobedience to submission. We've watched this unfold, how different people have, have handled 
the last 20 months. Some godly, some not. So what, about, what, what are legitimate laws? Legitimate laws can fit into two camps. God's law, and is it consistent with the system that's already in play? An example in the church world. When the governor said it was not lawful for the church to gather, I disagreed with her on two fronts. It violates God's law. And the order was internally inconsistent with other laws that already were in place, like freedom to assemble. Legitimate authority is based on the role and the function that they occupy. Let me also say this. Not all claimed authority is real authority. So if you stop by your mailbox on the way home and you see a tax bill in there and it's from the country of Canada, how many of you would pay that? No, not very many. We would say that is not valid because they are not an authority over the citizens of the USA. Authority has limits. Let me get a little more practical and a little bit more gray. Is it okay for a social worker at your child's school to talk to them about their sexual identity without apparent approval? Or is it okay for someone to mandate that you have to have the COVID vaccine or you will lose your job? We're wrestling with that right now. The question is, why or why not? And for me, as a Christian, I believe there are lanes and that the state has now stepped into other lanes. And when someone crosses their lane, it is incumbent upon Bible-believing Christians to go back and say, pause, let's look at this. And if you're out of your lane, go back in your lane. You don't have the authority that you think you have. But we must be really clear on understanding how the Bible talks about authority. Those in authority are not exempt from being challenged on that authority, but we do it in a truth and grace-filled way. Romans 13, 1 through 2 says, Everyone must submit to governing authorities, for all authority comes from God, and those in position of authority have been placed there by God. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And then you go to verse 3, and there's a job description of what government does. The passage is not a blank check for those in authority to say, Hey, Christians, submit to me because God has put me in this place. So there's some pretty clear examples in the Word of God that we need to be aware of. Exodus chapter 1, the midwives blatantly disobey and lie about sparing the lives of young babies despite the fact that Pharaoh, who was an authority, told them to kill all the male babies. Joshua 2, we see that Rahab hides and lies to the authorities in her own city to protect the spies of the people of God. Daniel 2, Daniel and his friends have been taken captive. They were told what to eat, and what they were told to eat was going to defile their bodies. So they're like in a conundrum. Now what do we do? So they go to the official and say, can we try something different? And for 10 days they let them. I would love to see what the Bible would said if they said, the official said no, but God doesn't have that in there. In Daniel 3, three of Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are told to bow a knee to Nebuchadnezzar when they hear the different instruments. What do they do? They choose to stand. In Daniel 6, we see his defiant prayer. When we know the order had been signed and he, and he was told only bow to Nebuchadnezzar, what does Daniel do? He goes up to his room, he opens his window, and he continues to do what he's always done. Pray to his Father in heaven. 
John and, John and Peter in Acts chapter 4, when told the, by the Sanhedrin to stop preaching in the name of Jesus or get beaten. What do they respond with? Do what is right. But we cannot stop doing what we are told to do. And I've already mentioned the one in Acts 16 and Paul and the Philippian city officials when he told them, come here. So clearly Romans 13, 1 and 2 is telling us to submit to authorities. But it's not a blanket statement to allow those in authority to abuse their authority. There are many examples in the Bible where this is shown. And those people I talked about here, where do you find some of those? The heroes of faith in chapter Hebrews chapter 11. So as you read these stories, ask yourself, who's right? Who's wrong? Were the midwives in sin because they disobeyed their authority to Pharaoh? I would say no. In the same breath that Christians are asked to submit to authorities, the leaders are called to act in a way that is not abusive of their power. This is not a blank check to one side or another. The question is, where is that line? Because it's muddy, isn't it? We've all wrestled over the last months over this. And I want to talk about three categories here. Holy cow, it's late. Sorry, it's going to be late. Moral, conscience, and preference. Every one of us makes decisions and put things in our lives in one of these three categories. And here's the thing. We don't all agree on it. Start with moral. Moral is clear. It's Bible verse, chapter by chapter. I can point you to it. When a governor says, do not go to church, I say Hebrews 10. Do not forsake the gathering together. That makes it a moral issue. To affirm something that is sin is a moral issue. Anything that is, is direct disobedience to what God has called me to do is a moral issue. Again, all authority is given to who? Jesus. And Jesus has given his, his words in the Bible. And I cannot violate what they say. So moving forward as a culture, Christians will be challenged on whether or not they will preach the full counsel of God. Because there are truths in there that are considered hate speech in today. God created them male and female. We are to be very clear. There are two genders, male and female, his and her. Just last week, I was reading about a, a football team. And a high school senior was suspended from his team because he would not call the person with the wrong gender. Good for him. Moral issue. Clearly stated in God's word. Second quarter category would be conscience. This is where believers might disagree with each other on. Have you disagreed with a believer in the last 20 months? Yes. You may not have a chapter and verse, but you've studied. You've asked the Holy Spirit to lead, and you pulled principles from the Word of God. Even if the Scriptures say, you shall do this or you shall not do this, you have a strong conviction about it in your faithful walk with Jesus Christ. Here's an example that are, are, are very relevant today. A Christian business owner refuses to make a cake for a same-sex couple out of conviction. Does the Bible say thou shalt not bake a cake for someone who has who's doing X? No. Some Christians would say, well, that's how we love, how we engage the culture. 
how we build bridges of relationships, and other Christians will go, no, if I make that cake, I'm supporting what God calls sin. Conundrum. A small business owner who decides to stay open because his job is to provide for his family and his employees. He's not sure if the mandate came down from an executive branch and if it's law or not. So he stays open while he pursues or she pursues legal action. We watched this in Holland. Family we know with a pizza place. Some Christians would say, how dare you? You should submit and close. Let me give you a parable. Imagine you owned a food truck. And a friend owns a restaurant that provides sit-down dining. The food truck actually goes up in business, and the dining is now devastated over these last 20 months. Is it fair for the brother who owns the food truck to look at her brother who owns the fine dining and say, that's not that hard, just adapt? Or is it better to say, hey, brother, you have a unique set of circumstances that I don't have. I may not share your convictions, but at least you can have them. Or does it look more Christian to throw stones at them and say, if you did it like me, you would be fine? When we think about conscience, there are a lot of variables. One that many parents have wrestled through this fall is you send your kid back to school and you don't personally want them to wear a mask. You have your own set of reasons for that. But then there's other set of parents that want their kids to wear a mask and they have their own set of reasons. Both may make arguments that they have principles from the Word of God that allow them to make that a conscience issue. We need to value each other's conscience. Is it a moral issue, a conscience issue, or is it a preference? This is not overtly moral or spiritual. There are just things you do or don't like. Tax rates, infrastructure bills, City zoning. I can get real worked up about this traffic light downtown Hart when it should be on Polk and 72nd. Preference issue. <laughs> the, pro the problem is when we get the three confused and then we become dogmatic where we put these things in these camps. Matthew 22, Jesus questioned about taxes and they are trying to trap him. Well, then he said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what belongs to God. He is making the case that there are certain things that Caesar owns. And there are certain things that God own, or you own, and there's all things that God owns. The problem in Christian unity is when there is disagreement on whether something is moral, conscience, or preference. Then when someone tries to impose their will on others that they think are way out of bounds. Has this not intensified in the last 20 months? Both in the culture and in the church? I've had conversations with many of you. Like, like, how do I even relate to a person that sees things so differently than me? You start foundationally with your faith in Jesus Christ. One of the big ones. Some Christians would argue that everyone should get the COVID vaccine and quote verses like, love your neighbor as yourself. And then there are other Christians that are totally opposed to it and they quote verses like, don't you know that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? And there's back and forth versus back and forth. Some Christians claim it's a moral issues. Others say it's not. Others would say no total preference. Others would say it's a conscience issue. When, when we disagree, there needs to be Christian grace and charity. In the church, we need to think of these three categories. Moral, conscience, and preference. We need to be quick to listen, slow to speak, 
need to be people who are willing to listen to others and be okay that they have different opinions and convictions and preferences than we do. Our FBC, Oceana Christian School, and I as your pastor will make decisions at times that you do not agree with, and I am fully aware of that. There are times when our elders and our pastors will have strong convictions that lead us to decisions that you might go, oh, that's terrible! Or you might go right on! And one afternoon, a couple months ago, I had a couple in my office saying, we're not taking this whole COVID thing seriously enough. You're ruining your, our reputation in the community. 45 minutes later, I get a guy come in and he says, direct opposite. You're not. Yeah, I won't even go where he went. <laughs> and I'm like, you should talk to each other and then you will find me somewhere in the middle. We have to make a decision on where we're going to stand and how we're going to respond. I want to walk you through how we... I'll skip this section. Oh, I've already cut like five pages. <laughs> Karen Isley this morning is like, just take the time. I'm sorry, I can't. I can't. And David, look at it. It's not even, my time's not even up yet. <laughs> okay, good. So I, I, we'll go to the question I want to end with. We're going to disagree on things. There are many in here right now that are facing life altering decisions that they have to make for your workplace, for your school. How do we disagree and how do we make decisions as we walk, walk alongside as a family? First, pray and ask the giver of all wisdom to illuminate his word in your life. Remember that you have God's greatest helpmate, the Holy Spirit, living in you. Listen to him. Seek godly counsel. And then pray for our government officials. God calls us to pray for those in charge. Even if you don't agree with them. The second, decide if this is a moral issue, a conscience issue, where you have strong convictions, or a preference and then there's an important principle as we move forward. Know your line. Know where your line and your conscience is. Don't budge. Know what it is. Study. Pray. I can't emphasize this enough. I'm not just telling you. I am preaching to myself. myself. We need to know our lines. But we need to be open to what the Holy Spirit is telling us. If you have conviction about X and you believe it comes from your time in the Word and God has made X clear to you, then stick to it. Continue to seek the Holy Spirit's direction. Don't budge or be bullied into a decision that goes against your conviction. But seek counsel. Third, understand which system you're functioning under and is there a legitimate law or authority there? Whose lane and whose responsibility is this? You've got to ask that question. And you might disagree with someone. But in your mind, you've got to figure that out. Fourth, choose either to submit or challenge the authority in a Christ-like manner. If it does not violate God's moral standards or your conscience, then submit. If it does, it is appropriate for you as a Christian to voice your concerns or to voice your support. Either way, sometimes there will be hard decisions to make. 
I've heard gut-wrenching choices. Got a, a sophomore in college just before this year. Get a letter about a week before school. Got to get the vaccine, else you, got, you can't come back to nursing program. Got a week to make the decision. What do you do? She chose to, 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 to fight it, to go through the channels. She was denied. She dropped out of the nursing program for now. She made that decision. Many people are making life-altering decisions. You are not a slave to your workplace or the school that you attend. If your workplace and you have very different convictions, it might be time for you to part ways. If they are violating your moral beliefs, then it is time for you to part ways. Pastor, how should that end? Should I make them fire me or should I go quietly? These are real questions people are asking. You have to decide. Make those decisions with biblical counsel, talking with your family, and do it in a way that honors Christ. Whatever you do, choose. Fifth, but in all things rest in the refuge of God. Psalm 46, 1 through 2 says, The Lord is our refuge and our strength, always ready to help in times of trouble, so we will not, what's it say, fear. If you're feeling like you are trapped, you're not. Trust the Lord. Part of lordship is not just it gets who, who gets to call the shots, but there's a confidence that I get to the follow the one who is in absolute authority of everything. There's a lot of fear that goes away when I know I can rest in him. But man, you don't know my boss, but I know him. You don't know what I'm giving up, but I know him and how he provides. I've watched it. I've witnessed it. There's a simplicity of being a Christ follower where we don't know how it works out. We think we need to control everything. What's it going to look like in five days or five months or five years? I could get worked up on that. Or I can rest in the fact that God is still God and that he is still Lord. Lordship is not just who makes the decisions, but it's a comfort and a rest. God calls himself a refuge, and you need to run to a refuge in storm. So wherever you are in life or in this culture, remember who is the Lord and then run to him. Six. Treat all believers in a Christ-like manner, no matter their convictions or their preference. Say that with me. Treat all believers in a Christ-like manner, no matter their convictions or their preference. It's really easy when you're not feeling the weight of conviction to go, Phew! Glad that's not me! Listen, if you've gotten your vaccine and go, Good! I've dodged that one? Great! Do it! But remember your brother or sister who have a different conviction than you do. Walk with them. Or if you choose not to get the vaccine and your sister in Christ did, walk with them. Alongside of them. Here's the thing about convictions and principles. Today it might not be plucking in the string that you care most about, but I guarantee it will be tomorrow. Built into the created order of God's humanity is an individual liberty. It is not just an American thing, but it's a godly thing. God has made you unique. He has made you and wired you uniquely you. You have different perspectives. We will wrestle and disagree with things, but our goal is to be found unified with the gospel. If you or a brother or sister that says, this one does not apply to me, but it does to others, 
Try to think of them and what they're wrestling with and how it applies to them. Church, you may disagree passionately with people about things like this. Love one another more than you love your preferences. Find unity in the gospel. If you see someone who has different convictions, do not look down on that person. I'm tired of that. Do not think they are crazy and not as Christian as you are. Because you would hope they would honor you in a conviction that you don't share. All of us have different perspectives on things. There are experts and there are stats covering the gamut. So it's important to know what you believe, where your line is, and what you will do, what you will do when it is crossed, and to walk in a way that models absolute conviction in what it means to follow Jesus. So let me end with this. Unity is not conformity. We do not want a church where everyone agrees on the same thing and we all wear the same t-shirt. I've been accused of that by people in our community, people that attend here. We do not want that. Each of us have different backgrounds, different experiences. And when we choose to love each other, we need to choose to love each other and be with each other. That's when the community around here will take notice. But when we're fighting and when we have disagreements and we're back talking against each other, they will not see God's love and grace and truth. We need to learn how to listen to each other. Actually, I think I've been thinking about this longer than three weeks. We were driving, Ben and I were driving down to the, the cross-country state tournament, and I said, I'm thinking about bringing a message. And I just sat and listened to Ben for the next 45 minutes. It was great. But, but the one, no, we had a good conversation. But we got to learn to listen to each other, even if we don't agree. It's hard for us to do that. But remember, you have the Spirit of God living in you. And God will allow his spirit to tell you how to love that person, how they need to be loved. This is not a dividing light in our church or in the Christian community. Yet so many people get to that point. Unity in Christ is not conformity. Be there for one another. When you live out of your convictions, it feels lonely at times, doesn't it? You should hear some of the calls I get. Some of the people in the military and what they're struggling through right now. When you live a life of convictions, you will feel lonely. But if you know you have a church family that supports you, no matter what you decide, to bear one another's burdens, it makes a huge difference. So at the end of it all, let Christ bind us together in the things that matter the most. Let the gospel be the glue here. We just spent nine weeks talking about the power of the gospel, not politics, not culture, not COVID, not all these distractions. Yes, they're real. Don't let them be distractions. This is a very deep and complicated topic. Let me reassure you that your pastors and your elders love you. No matter where you fall on the spectrum, we love you. We might not see eye to eye. If there's anything that we can do in this season, please come and talk we can pray with you, if we can offer counsel, if we can point you in a different direction and say, no, you need to talk to somebody at the health department, or you need to talk, let us, let us be part of it. I encourage you to search the scriptures for yourself. Come up with your convictions as you study the word of God. That was, I don't know, I'm only 10 minutes over. <laughs> so, I've asked...
I've asked Pastor Dave just to come up and pray before we sing our last song because this is a matter of prayer.